Welcome to Coffee with the Chief, the Trulio podcast. At Trulio, our mission is to improve trust in the police through body camera analytics. On this podcast, we talk with our team and some of the best police chiefs working today about how that mission can be realized. In this episode, you'll get to meet the two co-founders of Trulio, myself, Anthony Tassoni, and Teja Shastri. We'll talk about how, as business owners, we selected the right problem to solve, how to build a team, and the importance of finding your early adopters. Hey, Tejas, it's Anthony. Welcome to our first Trulio podcast. Why don't I introduce you and then just give you some time to fill in the gaps and do the same. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. So, uh, Tejas, if I were sort of to describe you to, to a friend, I would say Tejas is my co-founder at Trulio. He's a super smart dude, did his PhD at Northwestern, expert at machine learning. I know that you grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. Small yeah. town, rural town, Illinois. I remember your parents are professors teachers. You could easily be a professor, by the way. <laughs> uh, only child, played a lot of instruments growing up. And uh, your dad was a professor and he he would bring home old computers. I know that you sort of hack around on those things and how you got into computer science. I, and it's hard to square that with how you ended up with Jen, who like me, <laughs> you sort of married way outside your league. Just help me fill in the gaps there. I went to Northwestern for college. Uh, that was my departure from Peoria area. And if anybody you know knows about Peoria, I was actually from a suburb of Peoria called Washington. So an even smaller suburb subsect of, of the area. And so, you know, going to Northwestern, going coming to Chicago was getting to the big city for me. I met my now wife, Jennifer, on uh, our second day of school and it took uh, me a while to convince her to date me. It took some going to the gym, uh, you know, getting swole. She'll discredit the story, say it wasn't for that. But we met freshman year, started dating sophomore year and have been together since. And you being in the acapella group wasn't the, the card into the I, ladies that you thought yeah, would be? You know, we, I joined an acapella group freshman year and and there wasn't much change in her likelihood to date me. And mm-hmm. uh, the only thing I can point to is, is you know, gaining a few pounds of muscle mass. Tejas, if I were to describe sort of like your superpower, describe you as a builder, creator, somebody that loves to solve technical problems. I think that's exactly right. Accidentally became an entrepreneur because I grew up with just all of these varied interests that I, that I had. And, you know, I think part of growing up in the environment I did, you know, I'm always just synthesizing and, you know, the, the culture of my parents with society. I was I was brought up in all of that inspired me to build and create because I always had to come up with you know new solutions to move forward uh, in my own life and I think that's what brought me to entrepreneurship. I don't view startups as a risk. To me, it's the only way that I can work. I love solving problems and, and building something from scratch. That creator mindset has definitely driven a lot of a lot of decisions that you know I've definitely made in the past ten years. But it is sort of the way that I'm wired and really the only thing I think I can do as a profession. So we're super. Un- unemployable outside of being entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Tejas, take your best shot. Try to, you know, just lay out the bullet points here of me and I'll do my best to fill in the gaps. Yeah. So, you know, Anthony grew up outside of Chicago, very different family from myself. I was an only child. You had, uh, I believe, five brothers and sisters. You were one of five kids, rather. I know your parents divorced young. And so that really caused you to sort of grow up fast and I think become more of a, a risk taker and have more autonomy. You know, I know your family 
family is a lot of brothers who are combat veterans, family that's Chicago police, family that's FBI. And so there's a lot of sort of that military and, and police influence in, in your family and also a lot of competition. I think, as I recall, you and your brothers would play video games as kids, you know, and mm-hmm. there were no rules. You just had to win. However, you know, I, I think that has definitely permeated, you know, further in career. I know that the sort of turning point for you growing up was getting into trading. I think you got into trading at, what is it, 15 years old? 14 or 15. I was a caddy. Yeah. Got super lucky and got a job with a trade. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, to me, that sort of set up the rest of, of your career. I mean, uh, a lot of what I see uh, in you and, and you being an entrepreneur is, is uh, your expertise is really around, you know, strategy. You're always thinking, you know, how to beat the market, to win at uh, this game that's, uh, you know, entrepreneurship or or this game that's that's trading in market forces. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons you made that leap from using that skill set and in, in trading it to, to entrepreneurship was just that I think you got to maybe about 30 years old and, and felt like you were just on the hamster wheel of trading and you saw friends and family members that had actually built products and sold them for, you know, 10 to 20 X revenue. And you basically thought, hey, I can do that. <laughs> I can use the skill set and, and go there and uh, yeah. have a better optimization of, of my time and effort. I think that optimization is, you know, that that's another aspect I see in, in, in Anthony is you're always trying to optimize, even in your personal life, you know, you're big on personal optimization. I think you do triathlons every year. And just that trade, I think is one of the, the superpowers that I think makes you uh, successful uh, as an entrepreneur, that ability to strategize, make decisions to optimize, you know, against uh, the rest of the market. Yeah, I, it's that's pretty good. I think that I, I've made so many mistakes. I never make the same mistake twice. I really value like creating large surface area of lock. You described me being a caddy and I was carrying a golf bag for somebody who was a somebody and got a job there. I loved building financial models. That Some of the best work, the happiest times of my life were just coding and looking through large data sets and finding signal. I loved yeah. it. It was so, so exciting. And being an entrepreneur is very similar. Like you said, you know, I figured out I was only worth one X multiple. It was sort of a depressing thought to just, yeah. you know, you, you described it as a hamster wheel. That's exactly right. Trading and making money is super hard to, to just not have any leverage and not create multiples of your revenue. It was, I learned that right around 30 years old, as you mentioned, I'm 40 now. And so, yeah, I became a young CEO at 30 and began to think of myself as an entrepreneur and really develop an athletic mindset. And I wanted to ask you, we mentioned Green Key a couple of times and just anyone listening might not realize. So Green Key was our first company together. Mm-hmm. Uh, our backgrounds are similar, Wall Street. Uh, we developed Green Key, which was natural language processing for banks. And the area of the bank we were in was called sales and trading. We structured those calls. Green Key was acquired in 2021. The number one thing an entrepreneur needs to do is select the right problem to solve. This is number yeah. one. I always ask people to try to reframe what they're describing. It's just like, listen, just please concisely tell me about the problem that you solve. And I just want to get your thoughts on selecting the right problem to solve. And maybe what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's hugely important. You know, it's it's the number one driving factor of, of you know, whether your startup is going to be successful is did you pick the right problem to solve? There's a lot of factors that go into it. Is it uh, so, so we can talk about what makes it right. You know, what, what is it that makes it the right problem to solve? Is it big enough? Is it urgent enough? Is it causing a lot of pain for a particular user base? When we talk about causing pain for user base, I think that's a that's an important one because you know there's a lot of solutions out there that are that might marginally help a user experience. They're kind of like vitamins. Vitamins are needed, you know, they're necessary. Uh, there's big large companies that sell a lot of vitamins, uh, but the most successful startups are painkillers. There's a lot of pain that uh, a certain market has, certain users in that market have, and you find that pain and you give them a painkiller. And the painkiller analogy is a good one because you know if you have pain, you need a painkiller. You're willing to pay money for 
it. It's an urgent problem. Uh, it's a large problem. You can't move forward. And so finding those problems that are really causing a lot of pain, I think, is is where you're able to find that mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. of right. The problem that we were solving, looking back, it was a relatively small problem, right? Like, how do we help Goldman Sachs make more money or JP yeah. Morgan make more money? Mm-hmm. That, that's another thing to consider is like, if the problem is big, is there a viral coefficient? Will the users right. tell other users about the problem you solved? Or is that not the case, as it's not the case in Wall Street, right? Everything right. you do for them is, is secretive. Yeah, it, it, it's funny you mention that too, because I think one thing that always comes up is, is thinking about why hasn't this problem been solved yet? Oftentimes, the reason for that is just the status quo. Um, the status quo is pretty powerful. Uh, oftentimes, in industries, there's just a certain way of doing something, and you're trying to break that status quo. And if you don't understand why that status quo exists, then um, you, you might deliver a solution. It might be the right solution. It might solve pain. It sort of can't get over that aspect of uh, whatever that industry has. Finance, that was sort of the, the secrecy and the competitiveness that banks had. You know, they didn't really want to share technology you know, with each other. And so even if you solved it for one person, you know, that that uh, solution wouldn't just naturally permeate you know, across the industry. If I were venture, you know, especially early stage, you know, seed, maybe series A as well, I, I care less about details of the product and I care more about founders. One founder to me is kind of risky. That that person can't be a quitter. You, you and I benefited from each other over the years. I mean, I, I'll, I might have a down day, you know, and with yeah. certainly with startups, you got down days and you'll pick me up and vice versa. I think having two founders is optimal. Mm-hmm. I think the you begin to lose some degree of returns at three and four founders. You just there's too much accountability they could spread out. Pay a lot of attention to whether those founders are quitters. To tell me something about their background. I mean, it, it's true that like for example, uh, first generation immigrants, you know, tend to be really good entrepreneurs because they yeah. they don't have safety nets. Mm-hmm. They they can't fail. They're being driven by insatiable appetite to succeed that few people can understand what that means. Yeah, that permeates to your team. You know, it all comes down to really building the right culture and creating those cultural principles. And hiring at every company is hard, but it's even harder at a startup because every single person you add is a significant percentage of the team. Your first employee, your two founders, that first employee becomes 30% of your team. That's huge. Uh, And every single person until you get to, you know, maybe 100 or 200 is still a single digit percentage uh, impact, at least, if, if not more. And establishing that culture and finding the right pull for it um, is super important. We call it the pick up the shovel mentality, but I think we've done a good job of hiring and picking the right teams. We've had very little turnover you know, in our career with our teams. And we're I think we're constantly praised by venture capital and our investors and advisors that, uh, hey, the teams you guys have assembled are world-class. Yeah. I, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that it comes though with, uh, it, it's hard work to find those people. You know, it takes a long time often to to really get to the right person for, for some of these roles. And it's because, uh, you know, you really can't afford to, to make a lot of mistakes. You shouldn't expect to retain, you know, every single person, you know, to start up over the lifetime. Um, but, you know, turnover is expensive. Uh, there's a lot of people who can you know, perform at certain roles, but there's a subsect of them that are actually looking for that autonomy. And autonomy sounds great, but it comes with a lot of accountability. And so that person who uh, wants that accountability and wants that autonomy, um, you know, finding them is, is, is really most of the battle. And, uh, you know, when you do, it's, you know, you know, immediately, it's just like such a, a bright spot on the team when you, you know, you, you know, star athlete, basically, it's, it's, it's crucial that, you know, you're able to get it right. Customers will buy your brand or your culture first before your product, right? Mm-hmm. So especially when you're early stage, they're going to say, look, I met Antitagious. These guys are smart guys. Wow. I met their team. This is incredible. I'm going to buy this product. I might be on the fence about it, but I just believe in that team and those people that they're going to figure it out. So customers buy you first and your product second. And then also when you're recruiting, Tejas, I mean, how many times have like somebody, you know, be like the first 
interview and they'll get on to a call with us and our team. And then, the, then they'll just say, look, uh, I'm interested because I believe in this team and I've met on this call. It's sort yeah. of like, you know, our culture sells itself and recruits for us. There's a lot of data scientists that we've worked with in the past who are super smart, but can't surface their ideas. They're just not confident enough to direct and say, hey, look, that's a bad idea. This is a better idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you get, but you get salespeople, for example, who are way too direct and they're not compassionate about how they deliver that message. And mm-hmm. so this is the number one thing that you want to filter for in hiring is you want super smart people can nicely explain confident, right? They're going to be direct. They're going to explain why something bad idea and why we should do something else. That, mm-hmm. And getting that, getting that right in your company is everything. If your company's mm-hmm. too timid and you don't have people that are confident, if you don't have a culture that is high in trust and people don't feel like they can surface bad ideas, they won't because you'll have ego with the company and people will be afraid to attack ideas because they'll say, oh, that was Tage's idea. That was Anthony's idea. They're afraid to attack it. This is the number one thing you want to uh, create company is an environment where everyone feels safe to remove bad ideas for good ideas. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the, the way that starts is from the top. It's as a founder or as a co-founder, you encourage your employees to come to you and tell you why your ideas are bad. You know, poke holes in this. Uh, you open yourself up for that feedback so that, you know, they have that first step of comfort and and can and do that across the company. And uh, giving people the the benefit of the doubt that it's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to have bad ideas. Starting from there and just setting the mindset that we're all going to have bad ideas. We're all going to make bad decisions. Our job is to find those as fast as possible. Find those in your peers and around the company as fast as possible and bring, you know, a good idea or, or a solution to that problem. And that that culture, I think, is is essential, um, you know, because you can't let problems linger at, at uh, startup. Uh, success in a startup is just solving, you know, all the problems you need to until you're successful and, uh, you know, ignoring problems that, that were bad ideas just because, just because the CEO said it, uh, or just because that's the way, you know, we've always done it. You know, those, those things just need to be squashed out. Um, if, if they're not in support of the mission. But one effective way to, to, to find talent is to ship boxes to them. What I mean by this is go on LinkedIn, filter and create lists of people that have the skills, they work in cities or companies that you're looking for. Like try to identify 50 people you'd love to have a conversation with just based on their social profiles on LinkedIn and put together a really nice box for that person. Inside that box will be like, you know, t-shirts, uh, you know, whatever swag you want to send them and a note that says, you know, what your mission is, what the problem is you're working on and send them that box in the mail. And I want to say that 50 boxes is, it costs us like 1500 bucks total mm-hmm. shipping the materials we put in it. It's like $30 a box. And I think that you, I think the response rate is 20, 25% will text you or call you back. And I know that you've made recent hires um, from that strategy. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And I think even though uh, at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to get hundreds of candidates like you might through a recruiter, you're getting candidates that are already self-selected and filtered. You've done a little bit of the filtering already and somebody only responds if they're interested, you know, so you already know that there's some level of interest if they're responding to you. And once you get on the phone with them and if you like them, you know, the, the candidates that we've, that have gotten on the phone with us, you know, they, they know they have jobs, they're interested in the opportunity. They've all been at least a leaning towards uh, interest in uh, joining our company uh, and leaving theirs. And so there's a lot of good like self-selection in there. And even if you only get, you know, a handful of candidates, two or three from that exercise, they're going to be super high quality. They're going to be people that if they get on the phone with you, they 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 want to know more about your company and they want a job, you know, where where you work. And uh, you know, it's been it's been a super successful tool for us so far. Uh, we'll definitely be using it more uh, in the future. And it's a fraction of the cost of of what it would cost otherwise. Like the next most important thing for an entrepreneur is to start 
start to segment out early adopters yeah. and because th- this is like really hard, especially for sales folks that come from more mature companies. But being at a startup, especially when you're creating a new category, I mean, that's a different breed of salespeople, right? That just go out there. They've got no brand awareness. Product is young. They're invented a new category. And so uh, it's just a very difficult sale. And so as a salesperson, you want to spend time making sure you've segmented your, your target list appropriate. What you're looking for is early adopters. And it's only going to be maybe five or 10% of a typical customer who might buy your product year for two years from now. Your early adopter is going to feel a lot more like partnership. That, that, that early adopter is somebody that, you know, that, that referral, their feedback on your product, it's everything. It's everything. If you don't do a good job for that early adopter, the probability of a company being successful is very low. And so you've got to do everything to smother that early adopter and make sure you turn them into a champion. Yeah. That, and I think even within that early adopter, there, there's a bunch of criteria that you can filter for further. You, you really do want an early adopter that, you know, has pain and you're delivering a painkiller and uh, they will give you access to the users. This is important for enterprise software because oftentimes with enterprise, you get hidden from the user, the user is protected or the ultimate end user of your product, you know, might not be the person that writes the check to buy your product. And uh, as a startup, you need that feedback loop from end users to be as tight as possible so that you can accelerate solving their problem as quickly as possible. Uh, this was something at GreenKey that uh, we had to really work at to really, you know, our we would sell to banks. Often there was like a head of technology that we were selling to, uh, but the end user was a trader on a desk. And, you know, we had to do a lot to really get directly to that end user and make sure that, you know, they were an early adopter and make sure that we were solving the right problem for them. And so, uh, you know, when you're, when you're looking at early adopters, there's a lot of criteria, not only in terms of, um, you know, their, the, the organization as a whole, but also your ability to really, um, you know, communicate with the end user and an early adopter where there's no visibility towards that end user, even if uh, you're solving their pain, that is not always the right you know, person to go after because uh, you're not going to get a lot of feedback. And feedback is so crucial to building the product and, you know, having a solution that's successful long-term. The other the other aspect of that too is oftentimes, especially when you're in enterprise software, there's a lot of integration partners, and other large companies, vendors in the space, and you'll often get drawn towards uh, partnerships and, uh, you know, or some large company that's selling to your customer base will be interested in your technology and they'll talk about integration. And you got to be really skeptical of, of a lot of those partners. Because again, it's a screen between you and your end user who you're solving the problem for. You want that pipeline from you to the end user to be as short as possible. And partners can can often obstruct that and um, and often get in the way. And- 99% of partnerships for startup are a waste of time. No, I, it's, I'm super skeptical of partnering. The best salespeople at startups, they are obsessed with getting them to say no quickly. And it sounds counterintuitive, but a lot of salespeople are sort of desperate for a yes. They're they're just sort of, um, you know, they'll, they'll get on a call and they'll search for that yes, that continuation of conversation. And actually a startup salesperson, you want them to absolutely drive that customer to a no as quickly as possible, not to waste time. Um, because again, the solution is not ready or available to everybody in those early days. Also, you know, one of the, when we filter, when we're hiring people and we mention like Doc Wessey and Seed Curiosity, you want the whole organization to be asking questions why all the time. The valuation of, of Trulio, for example, is, is a sort of reflection of what type of questions are we asking these early days and how good of questions do we ask? You need to be asking why, you know, like, hey, you click that button. What did you expect it to do? Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tell me about the problem that you're tra- trying to solve. Really ask good questions around why and what are the customer's expectations with product. And uh, so maybe we should get into product. How do you select for the sort of best technology stack? How do you ensure you're building the best product for customers? For, for us, we one of the reasons we were, we were lucky with the success we had with GreenKey 
and now the success with Trulio is we really hit the market at the right time and leveraged uh, technology that was sort of at an inflection point. And that technology was natural language processing. You know, this company wouldn't be able to do what it's doing, you know, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, 10 years from now, uh, hopefully the technology that we're using is so commonplace enough. And if, and if we didn't form this company, somebody else would. And so you really want to find technologies that are at that inflection point where everybody is starting to, to see growth and, and real use cases. And, um, you know, that, that's going to make your life easier. You're, you're, it's like you're surfing. You want to catch the wave at the right time. You know, I feel like we did that with NLP. I mean, like it, it definitely is at the right level where um, you know, the, the capabilities that we need for it are there. And, and we can focus on adapting it for our industry rather than, you know, building something scratch. Elon yeah. Musk has that famous saying, right? That the, the, the biggest problem with engineers is they try to optimize the thing that should exist. And so <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I love when your team is reducing complexity. I, I love when you guys are refactoring because I and I think the right mix is something like, I don't know, maybe like 50, 50, 50% factoring, reducing complexity, 50% features. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that feels like the right mix is because just reducing complexity in UI or reducing complexity in how the technology works, it moves the needle of how the customer experiences your product, how quick and fast and responsive something is, how well thought out something is, something that took four clicks to get to before and now takes one. Those yeah. things matter and they, they they require the time and the energy of the engineering and the product management team to just focus on like, are we delivering this product in simplest form? And if not, reduce complexity. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you'll, you'll see these, you'll see these memes nowadays where, you know, people will uh, pull up the most complicated product in the world and then pull up, uh, you know, Google and all you see is a single search bar or, you know, Apple and you see a single button. And uh, it's true because it takes, you know, those companies have spent so much time figuring out and reducing complexity and, and figuring out what is the core value of their product and their solution and, and delivering that. And, you know, everything can always get, you know, simpler. And uh, I think that one framework that, that really helps a lot of engineers understand, you know, how to, how to think about that is that your product should be a reflection of like the learnings of your company about their users and, and, and their problem. And that's what it is. And so if you learn something new about a user, you need to really think like, okay, I learned something new. Uh, I learned that the user does care about this or doesn't care about this. You know, uh, how does that reflect as a, as a change in my product? And normally what that uh, correction is, is removing something from your product. You don't have a very clear problem that you're solving. What happens is you end up saying yes to customers. You end up saying yes to the wrong thing. And the customer then drives your product and you begin to bolt things together to satisfy the customer. You, If, you're, if your mission identity and problem were all tight, you would have the confidence to say no to that customer. No, we're not going to build that. This is why. That's not who we are. That's not the problem we're solving. And so it's just very similar to the sales problem. You get too many salespeople that are desperate for yeses. You get product managers and engineers and folks and customers don't have that mission as their North Star to guide them in those discussions. And so if your product people are bolting things together, I would say, you know, go back to the mission identity and problem. Is it not clear? Why do they not feel confident to say no to the customer? We're not going to build that. Here's the reason why. I want to ask like, what drives you to be an entrepreneur? What's driving you to, to why are you so attracted to sort of Trulio and these small startups? Why have you always stayed at sort of a small company? It's really around the autonomy. I think like that to me, the freedom to make the decisions and choices you need to in order to create what you know needs to be in the world. That is really what a startup in, a, in an early stage company gives you. And that autonomy is seldom found at larger companies uh, for a good reason. Once you get to a large company, you know, you've got to keep the company going. You can take a lot fewer risks. And uh, I find that environment stifling personally. I think that openness and the ability that, you know, if, if we figure out tomorrow that we have the completely wrong solution to the problem that we care about and we 
we know it's the right problem to solve, you know, cool, we'll pivot and we'll we'll scrap it and we'll find the right solution. And I like that level of freedom, I think is is only found at an early stage company. The success of GreenKey was because, uh, you know, tier one banks had those same constraints and they needed a company and a startup like GreenKey to, to even be able to innovate in the ways we did. I, I agree. And when you're at a small company, for, for me, it's about winning. That That's all it's about. It's winning. And when, as the company gets larger, you introduce more complexity, the goals can diverge, right? People like, right. especially like at banks, right? Like they don't always choose the best technologies or make the best decisions for the bank. They'll make them for their career. They'll invest in technologies that they have friends or buddies at, where it's not always about picking the right technology. And so for, for me, it's like, I, I can't imagine getting away from the act winning, just everyone be driven by that pure goal of winning. And um, any distraction from that, to me, it'd be unacceptable and I wouldn't deal with it. You mentioned earlier, my, you know, when I was little, my brothers and I, we would play like Tecmo Bowl and Joe Montana football and these video yeah. games and, and uh, you know, all, all was fair. And I can remember my younger brother, PJ, you know, picking this go route and it sort of hiked the ball and then he just clicked C right away and it would throw, basically it was like a glitch in the video game <laughs> and and he would throw it downfield to a guy and get 10 yards and he would just march down the field like that. And there was no stopping the play. It was a glitch, but mm-hmm. we all accepted like that's part of the game. Like this person figured it out and you just go up and down the field. And, and so it didn't matter how you won. It was all about winning. And I think even my my kids now, I have, I have four kids and almost every night play the game Trouble after dinner. And uh, what's happened now is my kids have formed alliances, game of trouble against dad. They're on a team called TB Team Be Dad mm-hmm. and they won't squash each other. You know, they'll, they, I, I watch their alliances break down as the pieces get, you know, towards the <laughs> end of the game. Um, but I'm really proud of them that they, they will, they do whatever it takes to win the game. And we're, we're a super competitive family and, um, and I really love winning and, and that's what I'm about. And I just can't imagine working at a larger company where anything gets in the way of. Yeah, hundred percent. Thank you so much for listening to Coffee with the Chief. This podcast is hosted by Anthony Tassoni and Tejas Shastri, co-founders of Trulio. To learn more about Trulio's mission to improve trust in the police with body camera analytics, visit Trulio.co. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Trulio underscore police. You can also find us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Trulio and on Facebook at Trulio Co. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified about new episodes of Coffee with the Chief. We'll see you next time.